invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. We are uh, going to take a little break from our Matthew study this morning since this is uh, Sunday before Christmas, but we'll be back at it, the Lord willing, again next Sunday, beginning with chapter 18 uh, of Matthew, and uh, trust the Lord will continue to bless our, our study there. Um, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 this morning will be our, our passage that we'll be looking at. And uh, we want to uh, spend some time uh, th- talking about the blessing of Bethlehem. Micah 5 and verse 2 says, But thou Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. This time of the year, we often hear about a little town called Bethlehem. And it's the Christmas story that we are hearing about. It's talked about in recitations. It's sung about, as we sang just moments ago, O little town of Bethlehem. And here in the little book of Micah, we have a prophecy about this little town of Bethlehem, and it tells us that in that town, the city of David, Jesus Christ would be born. Now, uh, we do not know the exact day, as we talked about in our Sunday school uh, class this morning. If you weren't here, we talked about that uh, we may not know the exact day, although it is very good evidence that it may very well have been on December the 25th, and we talked about that. Uh, But... uh, Here we have the event prophesied in the New Testament Gospels, and uh, we have the event taking place. But notice there it says, But thou Bethlehem Ephrata. Since there were two Bethlehems, the word Ephrata, meaning fruitful, is added to distinguish between the two. Uh, Micah named the place where Christ was to be born 650 or so years before he was born there. And then after that time, with so many intervening events, uh, probably there was a likelihood that one in the line of David would be born in Bethlehem, but it's most entirely out of the question. The odds are against it. No members of the family of David were living in Bethlehem any longer. Uh, They were scattered. Uh, The dispersion had driven them from the land. There was only one family in the line of David living in Nazareth, yet Bethlehem must be the place where the Son of God was to be born according to the prophet Micah. This prophecy was the sole basis on which the scribes directed the wise men to Bethlehem later. Philip Brooks wrote this song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, and in this familiar carol he writes, The hopes and fears of all the years. The hopes and fears of all the years. And he talks about them being met in that little obscure city of Bethlehem. The hopes that are seen in the desire of the wise men, the fears that were seen in the fright of the the shepherds. And I want to look at this twofold blessing of Bethlehem this morning. First of all, hope was born. Hope was born. There are four questions that I want us to consider as we talk about this hope that was born in Bethlehem. First of all, isn't it pitiful to be without hope? Isn't it pitiful to be without hope? Well, the answer to that is certainly yes. There are some people in this world, and there may be even someone here this morning who has very little, if any, hope. 
It's a very pitiful thing to be without hope. You remember the trials of Job? Uh, Job had lost everything except his life. He had lost his wealth, his family, and finally his health. And he came to the point where he thought it would be better to be dead. He thought he was dying. And you see his despair when you read Job 17, verse 14. He says, I have said to corruption, thou art my father to the worm. Thou art my mother and my sister. And where is now my hope? Where is now my hope? As for my hope, who shall see it? They shall go down to the bars of the pit when our rest together is in the dust. He says that corruption and decay are closer to him than his father and his mother. His parents had brought him into the world, but now he's closer to death than he is to them. His body was so weary and so sick, he was ready to turn into dust. And the nation of Israel from time to time came to that point as well, where they thought there was no hope. We read over in Isaiah 49 verse 14, but Zion said, the Lord hath forsaken me and my Lord hath forgotten me. Jeremiah 2.25, withhold thy foot from being unshod and thy throat from thirst, but thou saith, there is no hope. No, for I have loved strangers and after them will I go. The problem was that God had not forsaken them, but they had forsaken God. They had forsaken God and begun to worship idols. They went on thinking that their way was the best. Ever thought that way? Your way was better than God's way? Ever thought, well, I know what's best for my life. I don't need anybody to tell me what I should or shouldn't do. You remember Jonah? He was also a man that thought it would be better to die than to live. And this was after he had obeyed the Lord and preached a great revival in Nineveh. Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred maketh the heart sick. But when the desire cometh, it is a tree of life. You see, putting our hope in the wrong thing will always lead to hopelessness. There's only one place for real hope, and that's in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.12 says that at the time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now in the Bible, the word Bible uh, word for hope in the Christian life, it means that which is certain, uh, that which is sure, uh, that which is confident salvation. Hope is called the anchor, both sure and steadfast in Hebrews 6.19. It's referred to as a strong consolation in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 16. It's called a helmet in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 8. And a lively or living hope in 1 Peter 1 and verse 3. Now, Hope in the everyday, our everyday conversation is a little bit different. It's really almost opposite than the word for hope in the Bible. Normally, we use the word to express something uncertain. I hope it doesn't snow today. By the way, that's the road to mine on. I hope it doesn't snow today. I hope it doesn't rain. I hope it doesn't do this or that. 
We, that's the way we use the word hope. Or I could say, I hope my wife is buying me a Ford pickup for Christmas. Boy, that's as uncertain, or should I say certain, that she won't. But you know, when we speak of salvation in Jesus Christ, we cannot speak of anything more certain. The believer can be absolutely certain his or her sin has been forgiven and that they have eternal life. Our salvation in Christ is called hope, not because it is uncertain, but because we do not yet enjoy the fullness of it. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 24 and 25, it says, For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for that which... Uh, for what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But we, if we hope for that which uh, we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Now, isn't it pitiful to be without hope? I'm talking about the hope that Bi the Bible gives to us. Now, the second question I have for you this morning is, why can a Christian have such confidence why can a Christian have such confidence? Well, again, four reasons. Number one, we have God's promise. In Hebrews 6, 17 through 19, it says, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show into the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth in that within the veil. I want you to notice in that particular passage, the words immutable, cannot change. That means, that's what it means, cannot change or unchangeable. Notice the words hope again, and anchor, and sure, and steadfast. You see, God's promise is definite, and there is no maybe about it. There's no one say, well, are you going to heaven when you die? Well, I, sh I think so. I hope so. Maybe. Maybe if I've been good enough. No, that's not the kind of hope we have. We have a hope that is sure, steadfast. You see, a person who says, I don't know for sure. I might be. I hope I am. They're not using a biblical definition of hope you're either saved or you're lost and you can know for sure today titus 1 and verse 2 says in the hope of eternal life which god that cannot lie promised before the world began and we'll use that verse again later on but a little different emphasis so we have god's promise secondly we have jesus blood Hebrews 9.22, And almost all things were by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. This chapter in Hebrews clearly points to the blood of Christ as that which is absolutely necessary to be the perfect sacrifice for the sins of men. And we have Jesus' resurrection. 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's not a dead hope. It's a living hope. We serve a risen Savior. He is not dead. He arose from the dead. And that's tremendous hope. If you came to a fork in the road, 
And there were two people standing there, or there were two people there, I should say. Uh, one of them's not going to be standing because he's dead. If you were to ask directions, would you ask the dead man or would you ask the living man? A lively person. You see, we do not have a dead religion. We do not have a dead Savior. We have a living Savior. And we can know for sure that we have the hope of eternal life because of that. Jesus' resurrection. But there's also God's grace. 2 Thessalonians 2.16 says, Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. The Christian can have certainty of eternal salvation because such is not, such is not the reward of faithful service or good works, but it's the gift of God's grace through the blood of Christ. And our security does not depend upon our goodness or our faithfulness, but upon the Savior. The Christian's hope is not in his faithful service, although that is a wonderful thing to have, faithful service. God wants us to be faithful, but that's not where our hope is. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is our hope. And the fact that Christ lives within the Christian is a certainty of future glory. Isn't it pitiful to be without hope? And why can a Christian have such confidence? There's a third question. What is the Christian's hope? Let me just list seven things. I think we could list many, many more. One, we have eternal life. Again, here's that verse, Titus 1-2, in the hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Before we emphasized the one who promised. Now we're emphasizing here the hope of eternal life. What is promised? Notice here that this hope is not an uncertainty. It's a promise from God who cannot lie. God will never let you down. He will always keep his word. And when, do, uh, when he does, you can depend upon him. When does eternal life begin? When you die? No. Eternal life begins when you trust Christ as your Savior. From that moment, eternal life begins. Begins at the moment you trust him as your Savior. There's another thing that gives us hope, and that's Christ's coming. Titus 2.13 says, Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know the exact time of his coming, but we know he is. He's promised that he will. We have a certain uh, hope that he is coming again. Then we have his resurrection. Romans 8.23 and 24. And not, o- not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why did he, doth he yet hope for? Another great passage concerning the resurrection, of course, is 1 Corinthians 15. It says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some of you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain and your faith is also vain. 
Yea, and we have found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. And if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now it is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Amen. Listen, folks, if Christ had not been born, if he had not died, if he had not been resurrected from the dead, then all of this time that we're spending here is useless and meaningless. We're wasting our time here this morning. But Christ was born, and he was born to die. And he did not remain dead, but as the scripture tells us, he arose from the dead, and by that we know we have a wonderful hope that we too shall live. That is our hope. Eternal life, Christ coming, resurrection. What else is there to hope in? Well, we have the glory of God. The glory of God. Colossians 1.27 says, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which Christ, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, in the secular Greek language, the word glory speaks of a reputation. But here in the New Testament, it only not only speaks of that, but it goes beyond and speaks of honor and praise and dignity of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God. The glory of God was seen by the shepherds at the birth of Christ. It was seen by the disciples as they witnessed his life and his miracles. The resurrection and ascension were also seen as manifestations of the glory of God in Christ. Man who was made in the image and the glory of God in order to have a relationship with him, they have fallen short of that glory. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And yet when we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, our sins are forgiven. We are given a new life. We placed in Christ and we are once again have a wonderful hope of glory. How we could go on and on with these things. They're involved in our hope as Christians. But no, notice number five, perfect righteousness. Galatians 5.5, 5, for we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. We are not yet perfect. I think we all realize that. But you know what? We will be. There is the hope of righteousness. And then there's a rich inheritance. Ephesians 1.18, the eyes of our, your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance to in the saints. And again, listen to what he says again in verse 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. You know, when you get a reservation, 
you're supposed to be guaranteed that you have a seat someplace, you know, in a restaurant someplace. Well, you know, sometimes in this world, we get disappointed. But when God says you have a reservation, you can count on it. He's a, he's a God who cannot lie. He's promised us that reservation. It's reserved. That inheritance is incorruptible. It's undefiled. Fadeth not away. It's reserved for us in heaven. And then there's a seventh thing, and that is to be like Jesus. 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is, and every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. You see, all of these things are certain possessions for every true Christian. This is our hope. It's not God's will for the believer to be unsure about whether or not he possesses these things. Rather, it is his express will that we, be about, we abound in hope. As it says in Romans 15 and verse 13, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Oh, I'm so thankful this morning for a wonderful salvation. Isn't it pitiful to be without hope? Why can a Christian have such confidence? What is the Christian's hope? And then the last question is, what is the effect of denying the believer's hope? What is the effect of denying the believer's hope? Well, to teach that a Christian cannot be certain of eternal life and resurrection and glory is to ignore the meaning of the Bible word hope. You know, there are some people that say, and they claim to be Christians, they claim to have trusted Christ, but they said, well, you can really never know for sure. You just have to kind of wait till that day comes. You see, to deny the believer's hope, number one, it takes away the believer's sure, steadfast anchor. Takes away our anchor. The thing that makes it possible for a Christian to stand fast through the storms of doubt and fear and problems is the sure knowledge that the blood of his Savior has made him eternally right with God. And believers who do not understand their true position in Christ are left to drift on life's stormy seas without an anchor. We do not have security or stability. We do not know exactly where we stand with God. We are often troubled and fearful because we have a wrong understanding of salvation. Takes away that sure and steadfast anchor. And if we deny the hope, it takes away the believer's helmet. It talks about the helmet of salvation, the hope of salvation in, in a couple of passages in the scriptures. Ephesians chapter 6 is one where it talks about putting on the whole armor of God. I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I'm talking about the certain hope that you have, the assurance that you have. And if you deny that hope, it takes away that helmet of salvation. It's the believer's mind which is exposed then to the, Satan's darts of doubt. And when the devil comes with his accusation, a Christian has no helmet of no-so salvation, and he's defeated and tossed about. And then it takes away the believer's consolation. 
God desires that the Christian enjoy the comfort of knowing that he is eternal, eternally safe in Jesus. Those who teach in an uncertain salvation rob Christians of this priceless comfort. And we cannot, a true Christian cannot be robbed of this secure blessings, but he can be robbed of the comfort or knowledge of the blessings. Hope was born at Bethlehem. But again, the song talks about the hopes and fears. Hope was born and fear is banished. Now, Paul had fears. In 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 5, it says, For when we were come to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. You know, we all have fears, don't we? We have the fear of failure. We have the fear of being laughed at. We have the fear of disease. Some of us are fearful of growing old. For some of you, it's already too late. Get over it. We have the fear of dying. We have the fear of fear. We live in a day when there's a lot to be fearful of. Terrorists, identity theft, increased violence and immorality all around us. I don't know, there must have been some violence on my street. Can you imagine violence on Beaver Street? Somebody ran into the mailbox. Well, maybe they had too much to drink. Why would they run into the mailbox? I can't figure that out. But you know, we have fears all around us in this world. But some fears that are basic to man, if, they've not, if we've not put them to rest, because people are not trusting in Jesus Christ. What are man's basic fears? What might be your fear this morning? Well, we talked about the fear of death. Again in Hebrews chapter 2. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. He also like himself likewise took part of the same. That's the Christmas story right there. He also himself likewise took part of the same. Jesus became a partaker of flesh and blood. And then he came not. He was born to what? To die. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver them through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. See, what is the writer of Hebrews saying? He's saying that the law of God demanded and does demand death for sin. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. Satan was the cause of man's sin in the first place. And even though he is a usurper, he can claim justly so in a sense that the sinner must die. He had the power, the authority to demand that every sinner should pay sin's penalty. And on the account of this, all men, because all our sinners were fearful of death and subject to bondage because of sin, to serve it and thus to serve Satan. There is a fear of death. There's also a fear of Christ's return. Luke 21, 25 says, And there shall be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for the looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken and then shall 
they see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. Now this is not talking about today, although some would say it describes the way things are today, and it certainly could. But it's talking about the great tribulation. And if you know Christ as your Savior, you don't have to worry about the great tribulation. You won't be there. In other words, if you think things are bad now, well, they're going to be a lot worse then. And I'm glad I'm not going to be there. But there may be those here today who are not looking for Christ to return. They think, well, I'm satisfied with this old sinful world and I have no desire for Christ to return. Again, we ought to be looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then there's the fear of judgment day. Hebrews 10, 27, but certain fearful looking for judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. In verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now that verse is really for Christians and unbelievers alike. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. In Ezra 7 and verse 9, we read, For upon the first day of the first month began he to go up into Babylon, and the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. I believe in this verse, the hand of God is upon the, uh, this man for good. And God wants to put his hand upon you for good. But sometimes he puts, us, he puts a, his hand on us, it's a very heavy hand. It's the hand of chastening. Or as they used to say, he takes us to the woodshed. David had been there in the Psalms. In Psalm 32 and verse 4, he says, For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. What was God doing there? He was chastening David. He was taking him to the woodshed. David tried to cover up his sin, but God forced him to confess it and to face it. And if for a similar reason, sometimes God's heavy hand is upon us who are his children. And yet God's hand of chastening is altogether different from his hand of judgment. He says, vengeance is mine, or vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense. God does not take vengeance in a spiteful or vindictive manner, but God is going to judge sin. And something that needs to be emphasized in our day. Listen to the psalmist. He says in Psalm 75 in verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. And the wine is red. It is full of mixture. And he poureth out the same. But the dregs thereof. All the wicked of the earth shall wring them out and drink them. You see, the psalmist, as well as the prophet, spoke of judgment. Is a time coming when the cup of wrath will be filled up. And the cup of God's wrath is being filled up today. God is in no hurry to move. He's long-suffering. He's not willing that any man should perish. But that cup of judgment is filling up. And it's a bitter cup. It's the cup of God's judgment. And it's a head for, of everyone who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant which wherewith he hath sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite under the Spirit of grace. You see, if man despises Christ and what Christ has done for him, there's nothing ahead but judgment. And he should be fearful. There's a fear of death. There's a fear of Christ's coming. There's a fear of judgment day. And there's a fear of hell. 
Matthew 10, 28 says, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I don't believe there's enough fear today of hell. Perhaps there's not enough preaching on it. But man should fear hell. The Bible tells us it is a place of punishment and banishment, fire and torment and worms and darkness and consciousness and feeling and thirst and no hope of escape. It's it's a place of unfulfilled desires and unanswered prayers and wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of remorse. Hell is a place to be feared, but notice what Proverbs 9 and verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Hebrews 2.14 again says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that hath the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. God does not want us to be fearful. Luke 12, 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God does not give us the spirit of fear. 2 Timothy 1, 7, for God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, hope was born and fear was banished. He came to give us the hope of eternal life and to take away the fear of death. Christ's return. He came to take away the fear of judgment and of hell. Because of the hope we have in Christ, we need not fear death or hell. Even as the angels announced to the shepherds, fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. I trust you will let the joy of Christ's birth in Bethlehem give you the hope. Take away your fears. This is a blessing of Bethlehem. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you so much that we can gather this morning to enjoy the scriptures and to enjoy the fact that Jesus came to give us hope and to take away our fears. And Lord, I pray that as we meditate and think about these things that we will truly see what Jesus Christ has done for us. We are not a people without hope as much of the world is today. And we are so thankful for what you've done for us. Maybe there's someone here that does not have this hope. They're in a pitiful place. Not having the hope because they do not have a relationship with Lord Jesus Christ. But we pray, Lord, today the Spirit of God would speak to their hearts. Help them to place their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ who was born and then died for our sins.
We thank you, Lord, for your word. Pray that you'll bless it to our hearts. As we go from this place, we'll go rejoicing for what Jesus Christ has done for us. We pray in Jesus' name.